series on sin, as we're in a series on atonement theory and the study of the cross all the way through Easter, are intense. And this last week, for the first time in my teaching career, I, I really hit a roadblock. I, I really was stuck. And my teaching team could tell, a couple of them came back like, eh, this is kind of, a, kind of not hitting. And so this morning, we have a distilled down, uh, to, you know, 15, 20-minute teaching, which is preacher's code for 25, 30-minute teaching. And then we're literally going to be spending the back half praying through three movements. Now, before we do that, uh, I just wanted to pray one more time and ask the Spirit to do the work as we continue in our journey to the cross. Holy Father, we thank you. We worship you. Spirit of God, it is you who does the work in our souls. Every one of us come this morning with varying degrees of confusion and clarity, burden and blessing, sadness and joy, certainty and fear. And you are king over all of it. And so we let go. Spirit, would you enable every soul here this morning that you've gathered to release, to stop fighting, to surrender to you wholly, Sin is so insidious, it creates in us rebels' hearts. We become enemies of God unaware. And yet, in your mercy, you bring us continually before you, and we fall under the weight of your great love and your incredible mercy and your perfect provision and your holy wisdom. May these souls, mere humans, creatures created, may they know their place today and become a people of praise and worship and honor. In Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. Let's do it. 20 minutes. I want to start with a thought experiment this morning instead of silly stories as we often set up these heavier teachings. If you would, just take a deep breath down into your belly, and I'm going to repeat a series of words. I'd like you to pay attention to what memories or thoughts, what reactions you have to these words. Pay attention to what happens in your body. What emotional reactions do you have to this series of words? Another deep breath into your belly. We're present. Here comes the words. Obey. What happens in your body when I say submit? What memories are triggered when I say the word leader, church leader, small group leader, family leader, work boss? One final word. Authority. All right. Good memories, maybe for some. Warm fuzzies when you think about obedience, submission, leadership, authority. <laughs> the chuckles tell me that I, I would guess, for the most of us, uh, those words bring up kind of icky feelings, kind of memories uh, that are not the most exciting or the most blessed in our repertoire of memories. Words like obedience, submission, leadership, leaders, authority, these used to be venerated in our vocabulary as noble and honorable, but now they have become trigger words. These words seem to light up embodied memories of spiritual and even physical trauma. And so we culturally and collectively have a real resistance to rebellion against and aversion to these words, obey, submit, lead, authority. Uh, 
And in so many ways, our aversion to authority and inability to submit to leadership is justified. Broken parents have brokenness, intentionally and unintentionally. Take it from a parent. Pastors and spiritual mentors have inflicted deep wounds in our souls through their sin, conscious and unconscious. Politician is now synonym in many regards for liar, manipulator, cheat. Money-hungry, power-hungry bosses, we have felt manipulated, used, cast aside, and abused. And of course, in the day and age where it's dog-eat-dog, so-called friend groups have shown a general disregard for our well-being, if not fully betrayed and backstabbed us. And we all, friends, if we're honest, have in some measure done these exact same things to other people under our authority in our circle of influence. And so, in a collective cultural attempt to self-protect from these wounds... Well, we have simply found it safer for our first foot forward with authority to be rebels, to not submit, to be suspicious, rather than come alongside and come under the standards that have been established through tradition and history, we find it safer to just start by deconstructing any sort of established standards. We live by our own command. In the words of William Henry's great poem, Invictus, we have become the masters of our own fates the captains of our own souls. But friends, this is an act of futility. It is a delusion. It is a denial of reality. My favorite Dallas Willard quote makes it into about every other teaching here on Sunday mornings. He says, reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong, a collision in which we always lose. Listening to an interview from a scholar, Kelly Capic, he just put out a new book called You're Only Human. And in this interview, he said, The Christian tradition argues we were made to be creatures, and creatures by their very nature have limits, and those aren't a problem. That's a part of the good way God made us. We were made as creatures, we were made to be dependent on God, dependent on others, dependent on the earth. To be fully human, is to be dependent. Independence is a diminishment of our humanity as God made us. To be human is to be submissive and obedient to an authority and power outside of ourselves that sustains us and gives us true life. Friends, we were designed to obey God. It's in our very DNA. And so it's very helpful for us to address the cultural, sociological, psychological reasons for our collective gut level aversion to authority. But it's even more important as we make our journey to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in this first quarter of 2022, it's even more important to realize that in the imagination of the biblical authors, something has gone terribly wrong in our hearts. And the hurt that we have received under and from authority, or the hurt that we have inflicted, be that unintentionally or intentionally to others in our sphere of influence, under our authority, all of this would say the scriptures is due to sin. So whether we're living into the delusion right now that we're mastering our own fate, that we're captaining our own soul, and we're doing that as a self-protective mechanism, or if we kind of begin to get a little more gut-level honest with the reality that, you know, we really want a place of power so that we can stay in control. 
Really what we want is to be honored and revered by our circle of influence to get a sense of significance and love, whether we're doing it out of self-protection or for, you know, less protective mechanisms or reasons. When we get to the root of it all, we want to, so says the biblical narrative, we want to be an ultimate authority because we want to be God. It's a delusion. It's a denial of reality which Willard says we will always lose when we hit it. This is the tragic summary of Genesis 1 through 3, where we have spent the last few weeks meditating very deeply. Sin, this morning, is an act of rebellion against the authority, instruction, and guidance of God. Sin is an act of conscious rebellion against the reality that we were designed to submit, we were designed to depend on, we were designed to obey our creator. And here's the tragic irony of the modern myth, the modern cultural myth that we are mastering our own faith, our own faith, that we obey only ourselves. Here's the tragic irony. Even that idea came to us, we got that idea from authoritative power structures of thinkers and leaders and shifting social norms. Philosophers like Charles Taylor, historians like Carl Truman, they have done exceptionally helpful recent works, and I would say very, very dense works for the super nerds in here. And they trace the trajectories of of the, the thought leaders and the ideas that have formed the modern mind that is utterly committed to this radical individualism and absolute personal autonomy from any sort of outside authority. And what those authors do is they make it very clear You and I think that self-definition and then individual expression of that self-definition, apart from any outside authority, you and I think that that way of being is most important to our flourishing because some authority told us that that was the way it was supposed to be. And we are believing that authority and we are obeying that authority. We cannot escape We cannot escape our dependent, submissive, obedient nature. It is in our DNA. We were designed to depend and obey. And so it's not a matter of individual autonomy or captaining our own soul. That just doesn't exist in reality. It's a matter this morning of who or what are we obeying? That's the big question for the morning. Which authority Who are you submitted to? How are you serving? And in so doing, what authorities are you rebelling against? And so we come this morning again to Jesus of Nazareth. And we take up this theme of sin is an act of rebellion. We only have a couple more teachings on sin. Thank God. These are hard, hard sessions. A couple more teachings on sin over the next couple weeks. But for this morning, sin is an act of rebellion. And in John's gospel in particular, sin is specifically an act of rebellion against the true king who was the creator embodied among us for our salvation. Jesus as the God-man, the true king among us. Again, from what Kim read this morning, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. We've been exploring the garden at length over these weeks, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who rebelled against him, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came into the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Let's talk about Judas and the soldiers and the Pharisees for one brief second. We're actually going to pick them up as our prayer movements at the back end of this morning. 
Judas, the soldiers, and the Pharisees represent the three primary rebellious kingdoms that we build when we're living into and out of our sin. When we're living into the delusion that we master our own fate and captain our own soul, here's the three kingdoms we build. The kingdom of self, the kingdom of power, and the kingdom of false honor. Judas, committed to self, utterly turned inward, driven by greed, building his kingdom of self in rebellion against reality. The kingdom of power is exemplified by the Roman soldiers who had mastered vulgar displays of power to keep their subjects oppressed and in check. And the kingdom of false honored, represented by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the social elites, the culturally educated. They were the movers and the shakers. And they said, you're in, you're out. You meet the standards. You don't meet the standards. And they loved that place of honor. They loved that place of reverence. And they allowed those in that they wanted to be honored alongside of them. And if those didn't meet the rules that they set, they were cast out. Does that line up with any of the tribal systems that we all exist in right now in this day and age? This splintered pharisaical system of right words, right behavior, right belief, you're in. Wrong words, wrong belief, wrong behavior, you're out. It's a kingdom of false honor. No matter what, everyone, whichever kingdom we're building, runs into reality. At some point, when we build a kingdom of self, it never satisfies. It leaves us feeling lost and alone and empty. And the kingdom of power that we try to build through our manipulative control mechanisms, be that vulgar or subtle, it always fails us because at the end of the day, we actually can't control the universe. Surprise. <laughs> and the opinions of others, whenever we build our kingdoms of false honor based on how many likes we get on Instagram, how popular we are in our sphere of influence, how many people revere us as significance, when we build the kingdom of false honor upon the opinions of others, we find that the opinions of others are very fickle and always shifting. And so our foundations are always cracked and moving and unstable. God in his mercy, though, confronts these false kingdoms and he lets them fall. And that's the big idea for our morning. All of our false kingdoms must fall under the weight of God's love and mercy and grace and truth and reality. How? Back to our text, verses four through six. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him as these rebels surrounded him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? What a key question. Do you want self? Do you want power? Do you want honor? This is such a merciful question. What do you really want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, not even knowing what they were saying. And he says, I am he. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So what John is doing here is he's making very clear Jesus, this peasant carpenter from the backwater nowhere in the Middle East, is in absolute control of Judas, the Roman Empire, the Pharisees, and all of the cosmos. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. And so John is making a very obvious presentation that the creator king, embodied in flesh, is now coming to save rebellious humanity from itself. Jesus acknowledges when he asks, what is it you want? They say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Very key point here. In the Greek text, it's better translated simply, I am. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, he says. 
John is anything but subtle with this little literary move. Throughout the gospel, there are seven I am statements around which this gospel is built. And there's a couple places where Jesus simply refers to himself as I am, here in John chapter 8. Follow with me for just a moment. In the book of Exodus, when Moses was being called by God to go and confront the kingdom of Egypt, he asked God, hey, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? Who should I tell the Israelites? Who's, who's made me in charge? God responded with his formal name, and it was simply a verb. Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Theologians call this the tetragrammaton. Can you all say tetragrammaton? Tetragrammaton, you just learned a big theological fancy word. You sound so smart. It's God's name. It's a verb. I am that I am. I am who I will be. I will always be I am. It's this all-inclusive verb of the existence of God. It's his name. And now, as Judas and the soldiers and the Pharisees surround the reality that is the creator king embodied in flesh, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth is who we seek, he says, I am. And it is the creator responding to rebellious humanity. And these rebels, they drew back, verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 6, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. This is our big point of meditation as we get ready to come to prayer. Because their falling to the ground, friends, is pure mercy. It's the mercy of God in our lives this morning. Their falling to the ground is God's grace and love. Here's why. As creator God, he could have in that moment obliterated them. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Here's 180,000 archangels obliterated. (laughs) He could have wiped them out. He could have, throughout the history of the world, wiped out humanity at any given point. But what we see instead through the millennia of humans creating kingdoms of self and power and false honor driven by sin is that all of our human kingdoms eventually fall before God, but humanity still continues on and is not obliterated. The kingdoms fall, but humanity goes forward being given opportunity for mercy and grace to surrender. My wife and I spent probably six hours in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in December for our 20th anniversary. And I felt like I hadn't even scratched the surface. We were just exhausted. We just could not walk around and look at anything else anymore. And I had one of the most spiritual experiences in our time in Manhattan in that museum. And here's what happened. Prior to that day, if you've ever been to Manhattan, I was a little bit overwhelmed. I'm a small town country bumpkin from nowhere, walking around in the big city with all the big city people. (laughs) And it was overwhelming me. I was in this kingdom of selves, crammed onto this tiny little island with the citadels of power scraping the skies above me. And I had this overwhelming sense that I was an insignificant, dishonored, unnoticed nobody from a nowhere place in a city of somebodies making their way to the top. So we go into the Met. And it's weird because God just kind of guided us by the Spirit unconsciously through a history of the empires of humanity. (laughs) We started like in Mesopotamia and the kingdoms of Egypt, and we ended making our way through the Met with the recent Americas, with the Western Americas. And as I was walking through all of these exhibits, I was standing in front of cases that were filled with the armor of knights, and I was looking at the riches of kings gone. And I don't remember exactly which kingdom we were in, but it dawned on me, and I had this surreal sense that I was walking through the rise and fall of human empires. Each corner was the rise and fall of a human kingdom. 
And these humans and their self-made kingdoms, they had exerted more power and experienced more honor than I could ever imagine. And now there I was, an insignificant nobody from nowhere, standing in front of their artifacts in a glass case. And they were nothing but dust and memories. And as I walked out onto the streets of Manhattan, I looked up at the skyscrapers, these citadels of power, and this kingdom of selves massed onto this tiny little island. And I thought, it's a dust speck. It's a puny little meaningless nothing. This empire crammed onto this little island in the largest empire that has ever existed in the history of the world, America. It's just a blip. It's, not even, it's barely a blip on the radar of God's reality. And that infinite sense of finitude and finality and the certainty that all of human kingdoms would fall before God, but that even the Manhattans would not be, the humans themselves would not be obliterated, set my heart to worshiping God's mercy and singing and wanting to literally run up and down the streets from the Met all the way down to Battery Park. Reality is coming. The king, the king is coming. And we will all come face to face, not with obliteration, but with mercy. And this is what I mean. Whether it's personal or global, when our lives all start to unravel, when we're unraveling at the seams and it feels like we're falling, we're falling apart, we're falling down under the power of something that we cannot control any longer, that is a mark of Jesus coming and saying, I am, I am. That is a moment where our rebellious little kingdom, the house of cards that we've created, is being blown over in the eternal hurricane of God's reality. How? Well, let's just take the last few years. The last few years have been a very refreshing brush with reality. The house of cards that was the American myth of mastering our own fate have been blown down in the hurricanes of plague, social upheaval, racial unrest, which has always been present. For some, the answer has actually been to double down. I'm going to double down on my kingdom of self, my kingdom of power. I'm going to keep pursuing the myth that I master my own fate. I'm going to ignore what's happening around me and just keep on trudging. But for others, there's really been a reality check. I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to over these last few years that have been asking these questions. Am am I doing what I should be doing with my life? Is what I'm doing right now really matters? Am I who I want to be? There have been more moves through the COVID epidemic than in the history of the United States because people are like, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I'm doing. I'm out. I'm going to go do what I think I should be doing because this has made me very aware that I'm not in control and I don't want to waste my life. What kingdom am I living for? It's been a brush with reality. So church, salvation from sin Salvation from sin is surrender. It is surrender. It is waving the white flag to King Jesus and saying, I surrender it all. It's to fall before Jesus with our confusion, our bruises, our blessings, our dreams, our unmet expectations, our fears, and our faith. It is to fall before him and we hear him say, I am am. I am that I am. I am reality. I'm the creator. I am sovereign. I am over all of this. And it is to turn over all of our will unto him as an act of full surrender. And the process of Christianity is a process of daily surrender. 
Every day we make a thousand choices, either towards the kingdom of self and power and false honor or towards the kingdom of Jesus. And here's the good news of the gospel. Even when we rebel, which we all do, even after salvation, being filled with the spirit, the little tyrant king that is our warped soul because of sin wants to rule. And so every day we will still make decisions to rebel against the true king, but over and over and over he says, take me, not them. John 18, 8. I told you that I am he. I told you I am. I told you I'm reality. And if it is me that you truly want, let my people go. Echoes of Moses delivering the Israelites and the slaves. Let my people go. Let these these people go. Take me, not them. Humiliate me on the cross and honor them. Overpower me. I will be overpowered by your false kingdoms to protect them. This takes us to prayer this morning, friends, personally and corporately. And so as a church, and as a person this morning who maybe is new to church, or maybe just you've been in the church forever and you're coming to grips with the reality of how much we rebel against God, you could be saying, there's no way that Jesus could love me and be merciful with me. There's no way he could take me into his kingdom. I just rebel too much. I've been doing my own thing for too long. Listen, one of the greatest church planters that has ever existed in the history of humanity wrestled with this. St. Paul in Romans chapter 7. That which I want to do, I don't want to do. And that which I don't want to do is what I do. I'm a constant rebel. But listen to Paul's words later in Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? More on God's wrath in later sessions. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, while we were rebels, while we we were crammed onto that little island, scraping the sky with our citadels of power, defining ourselves as honorable in the midst of a group of honorable others, Jesus died. Take me, not them. Dishonor me that they might be honored. And we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God's love for you and I this morning, as rebels and as reconciled family, is beyond what any of us could imagine. It's beyond what, it's what you want. When Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, they have no clue that what they're actually answering is the truth. We want God's love embodied in Jesus to give us a sense of significance, acceptance, honor, all of the things. And so even in, if you arrive here this morning and you've arrived in your most obstinate, deconstructing, hyper-cynical state where everything about authority and the church and life is nothing but wounds and trauma, spiritual and physical, God's love intends for you to fall before him and trust and obey and receive, and be healed. It's what he wants. He has come to you this morning, and he's asking you, what do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing songs, and we're going to pray 25 minutes. So there you go. 25 minutes of teaching, and now for for this first prayer movement, we're, we're just convinced that songs and sermons are great, but until God's people are praying, we're just kind of twiddling our thumbs. So 
First of all, if you're new here and you're not comfortable praying, please don't feel like you need to. You're surrounded by a group of Christians. Many of these Christians are very mature in the practice of prayer, and they're not going to be weirded out if you just sit there quietly and observe. I remember when I first came to the church, this kind of stuff freaked me out. You need your heart to just be set at ease. Christians pray. It's actually what we do. It's, it's the air we breathe as we pray, we pray, we pray. So we're devoting the rest of our Sunday morning to praying this teaching in. Okay, So we're going to work through three movements. If we could put those movements up real quick. Here's our three movements for the morning. We're going to pray first, personally, this morning, that the kingdom of self would fall before Jesus' love. Then we're going to pray that the kingdom of power would fall before Jesus' sovereignty. This is where we're going to pray for our city. We'll probably move around a little bit at that point. Then we're going to get into groups of like three or four, and I'll guide us in that. And we're going to pray that the kingdom of false honor would fall before Jesus' community, meaning we've been welcomed into the Trinity and welcomed into each other. True acceptance across color, across education, across economics. We're children. We're family. It's everything that you guys have been looking for. It's everything that I've been looking for. And all we need to do this morning is fall. It's an invitation. Don't double down this morning with that hyper-analytical, hyper-cynical brain. Don't double down on, I will figure this out. This feels manipulative. I'm not going to do this. I've been down this road before. I've repented before. I'm not, no, just fall. Fall for a morning. And then tomorrow, wake up and fall. And tomorrow after that, wake up and fall. And the day after that, wake up and fall until finally you see the king face to face. And Revelation tells us, all of us will cast ourselves at his feet, casting our crowns at his feet. We will spend eternity falling at his feet. So do that.